Welcome back, friends, to another edition of The Mark Claire Show. It's another Monday. And as always, my pledge to you is to bring you a great conversation each and every week, even when I'm having a difficult week. And um, I like to be honest with you guys. Now, I have had a pretty tough week. You know, we moved houses, so I've been setting up a new studio. Uh, but it's also been a, just a tough week in my life. I'm not going to go through details or anything like that. But the truth is, you know, between setting up the new studio, I did have an interview recorded and I that interview will still occur. But I decided to push it back for a couple of reasons. One, I just didn't have the right energy and I want to be able to put the right energy into these things. But two, because I knew I had a great conversation to share with you because a couple months ago, I invited Chris Knowles, who has been on this show before, talking about Super Bowl halftime occult rituals a few months ago. I actually had him on my other podcast, the Second Print Comics podcast, and we had a conversation that fits right in line with what we discuss here at the Mark Claire Show. Uh, we talked about the occult origins of superheroes. Uh, so because I knew I had this conversation, I wanted to share it with you guys. That's what I'm going to do here this week. There will be no video of the Mark Claire Show this week, but if you do want to watch a video of this interview, I encourage you to type in in YouTube Second Print Comics. Go over to the Second Print Comics YouTube channel. Toss us a subscribe. Watch the video over there. You can find it uh, from a few months ago. It should be pretty easy to find. So please do uh, check out that if you want to see the video. Before we get into that conversation, of course, I got to tell you about our fantastic sponsors. That's right. The fantastic Mr. Fox, Mr. Stephen Fox, the proprietor of Fox and Sons Coffee. This gentleman has been shipping me the finest beans I ever did grind and I ever did brew directly to my door each and every month. You know why? Because, look, he didn't make me do this. He offered to be a sponsor. I accepted after I tried the beans because I wanted to make sure I was offering you good products here. But he didn't force me to get a subscription. That was of my own volition. So every 30 days... A new bag. Uh, for me, it's the Den Blend Dark. That's my go-to. Shows up at my door. A two-pound bag shows up at my door. And right now, Stephen Fox is offering $4 off those monthly subscriptions. If you're a little hesitant, you don't know, want to know if you know if you want to make that whole commitment right now, you want to try it first, I get that. That's why I have a nice discount for you to give your first bag or two a sample. Go over to foxandsons.com, F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. Use discount code MCS at checkout. That's going to get you 18% off that first order as long as it's over $25. So you can try a couple beans, figure out what your favorite is, then come on back and get that $4 off your subscription. So please do check out our fine sponsors, Mr. Fox, the fantastic Mr. Fox, over at foxandsons.com. With that being said, here is my discussion with Chris Knowles on the occult origins of superheroes. I've got a, a very special guest here today. He is the proprietor of the Secret Sun blog, as well as the author of a number of books, including most relevant to today's discussion, the book, Our Gods Wear Spandex, The Secret History of Comic Book Heroes. Very pleased to welcome Chris Knowles. Welcome to SPZ. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. All right, Chris. Well, uh, I think we should just start at, well, the beginning or the beginning for you anyway. So just to give a little bit of background on yourself so everybody kind of gets where you're coming from here, maybe you could just give uh, some of your background on, I guess, your research and interest in the occult, the subject of the occult, but also your own background in the comic book industry. Well, I started reading comic books when I was three. That's how I learned how to read. Uh, I started in the industry fairly early. Um, when I was 17, I went to work for New England Comics. I was their first uh, full-time manager at their store in Quincy Center in Massachusetts. Uh, I went to comic book school, uh, the Kubert School. Um, started working in New York doing stuff for like Disney and uh, <clears throat> Warner Brothers. 
I mean, all, I mean, you name it, Batman, Superman, Street Fighter, every possible licensed property that you could imagine I was working on. Uh, did some work in advertising. And then in 1995, I started working for Toy Biz, which is the company that eventually became Marvel. When Marvel went into bankruptcy, Toy Biz bought them out. And I started doing uh, practice package design for them in uh january 1995 uh and i worked i freelanced doing marvel character art until 2020 and uh so that's 25 years uh pretty solid i mean i was doing a lot of other stuff in between as well i was doing a lot of advertising and storyboards and just i mean you name it i did some comic book work uh all kinds of stuff so I've done kind of pretty much a little of everything um, in the industry. Uh, I worked for, uh, I was an associate editor on a magazine called Comic Book Artists, which was a big magazine back in the day, uh, five-time Eisner Award winning magazine. Um, I wrote Our Gods with Spandex in 2006, was published in 2007. I uh, did a bunch of documentaries and some television appearances, radio stuff, uh, you know, promoting that book. Um, so I have a pretty, you know, my entire adult life, like into the, you know, sort of the lip of my uh, adolescence, you know, the uh, the final days of my adolescence into my you know if you talk about adult life being 18 which i don't know if i necessarily agree with but um i'm 43 and i'm still deciding if i'm yeah 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 <laughs> so uh i was you know i've been working in the industry um on marvel dc a number of different characters uh doing where the real money is which is in the merchandising toy design i did a lot of toy design in the 90s uh i'm, I'm sorry toy packaging design um and like i said comp i mean i've done pretty much everything you can name and i wrote uh a gods with spandex because it was kind of like um you know where did the superheroes come from what's the lineage what's the um You know, the origin, if you will. Yeah. Well, because really what it comes from is that it really starts in the 19th century with the rise of um, theosophy and, you know, similar movements and then movements like the Golden Dawn and, you know, the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons, which had already been around. Um, Can you just to take a brief kind of like a, I want to do like a one on one, maybe just on, on theosophy and that concept. So people kind of get a, a little bit of a sense of where we're coming from. I know a lot of this is stuff you talk about a lot, but a lot of the, this audience may have never heard of this stuff before. So maybe just give a, a briefing on theosophy. Maybe it might be a good place to start. All right. So theosophy was a movement that came out of that arose out of spiritualism. And spiritualism was a movement that arose in the wake of the Civil War. And it had to do with uh, spirit contact and seances and mediums and so on. And, I mean, most of it was showbiz, really. Most of it was fraud. Um, but then this Russian woman emigrated to the United States, this woman called uh, Helena Protovna Blavatsky. Um, pretty sure she was mixed up with, like, the Tsar's secret police. Uh, she got involved with a lot of rich and influential men in New York, started the Theosophical Society, 
which is really the the um, prototype for the new age movement because it sort of combined like um, esoteric Christianity with Hinduism, Buddhism, and occultism, and you know, a little something for everyone. You could yeah, a little something for everyone. Um, now the movement really kind of sputtered out. Interestingly enough, in the wake of the Russian Revolution. So that sort of speaks to who was really driving the train there. Um, Blavatsky died fairly early. A woman named Annie Passant took over. Um, they they moved, they picked up stakes and kind of moved to India and they got very involved in the Indian nationalist movement. So um I think that also kind of speaks to who was paying the bills in this movement. Um, they chose this young man called Krishnamurti and, um, you know, announced that he was like the, 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 the uh, you know, the avatar, the Maitreya, as they called him, Lord Maitreya. He was the new Buddha that was going to uh, save all of mankind. Um that didn't work out. He didn't want to get really involved with them, but they did along the way, they did along the way get involved with Gandhi, people like that, all these people in the Indian nationalist movement. Um, then you had outgrowths of theosophy. You had anthroposophy, which was Rudolf uh, Steiner's variant, which is still very much around. Uh, he formed the uh, Wal Wal Waldorf schools, uh, which are very elite public uh, private schools. And then you had the Lucis Trust with Alice Bailey, which I think was British intelligence answer to theosophy. And what we had in the 20s and 30s was what were called pulp magazines. Pulp magazines were short story magazines printed on extraordinarily cheap paper. I mean, just, you know, it was pulp because it was just barely a grade. Of, I mean, it was barely a grade above like just pure wood pulp just uh i mean it seemed to like yellow and fall apart as you read these magazines and it's very hard to find pulps today because they're all just completely disintegrating because you know the paper was so high in in, in uh, acid content mm -hmm. so but anyhow there was a number of you know the, the first superheroes were really printed in these these magazines and there was the shadow which was just basically batman uh, the forerunner to Batman, except for he used 45s, twin 45s. There was uh, Doc Savage, who was the forerunner to Superman. Um, there were a number of other characters like the Avenger and the Spider, uh, you know, which sort of became through various twisting permutations, you know, the Avengers and Spider Man, uh, you know, uh, just a number of. So these were really the first superheroes, but they. They, their powers did not come from science. Their powers came from the occult. They all, you know, went to the quote-unquote Orient, which is usually the Himalayas, to study uh, with the Swamis and the Fakirs and all these kind of the CD mystics and all these kind of people and, you know, l learn superpowers. Um, oh, sorry. Jimmy! I got him down here. Thanks. <laughs> uh anyhow <laughs> so um you know they're very popular but what had happened is that in during the war 
there was paper rationing and the pulps were really affected by the paper rationing um for some reason other magazines were not uh but the comic books came in and the comic books really started like literally as um they would take old uh sunday comics sections and cut them up and sew them back together um and these became very popular so this would be like you know buster brown and the cats and jamma kids and you know blondie i mean all these old comic strips little nemo whatever and they were um replaced by more original material and the first big superhero was you know the doc strange but also uh a sort of a copy of this character called the gladiator uh these two kids from cleveland uh siegel and schuster um they you know their big um innovation was to give the super you know change the superheroes from like street clothes which they wore in the um in the pulps and gave them like you know these circus costumes you know what i'm saying like these circus strongman costumes which is really what superman's wearing um but superman had an immediate predecessor uh, as well by um siegel and schuster called this the uh doctor occult mm. and doctor occult starts off as just that one's pretty on the nose huh <laughs> yeah right uh your, your typical kind of occult detective there are a lot of these you know people like uh seabury quinn and um dion fortune there are a lot of people writing uh sax roma writing occult detectives people you know detectives who specifically investigated the occult and Dr. Cult went from wearing, um, you know, like a trench coat and a fedora and so on to dressing more what we would recognize as Superman. He's wearing like, you know, uh, briefs, <laughs> you know, tidy whities I guess, uh, and a cape. But, you know, otherwise, you know, he's kind of naked, which is kind of interesting. But the character that uh, Jerry Siegel invented after Superman became popular was a character called a Spectre. Mm-hmm. which was this um, uh, cop named Jim Corrigan who's killed and is resurrected to become this avenging angel, like this literal avenging angel. So Jerry Siegel was very much interested in, in occultism. And a matter of fact, uh, you know, he kind of had all these struggles with, with DC, who were the publishers. Um, they were called National at the time. But... Um, he ended up putting a curse, you know, like a public curse on them. Like I curse you because <laughs> uh, of the Superman movie, uh, because they kind of got cut out of the royalties. Mm-hmm. And what it ended up happening is that there was so much bad publicity over this that um, DC ended up giving them a stipend, like a, uh, you know, little kind of, I think it was like $20,000 a year, which in the sense that how we got Superman four. Was that the, was that the curse? Yeah, right. And, and, and three, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting too. At least we got Richard Pryor in three, but well, you know, what could happen to Richard Pryor and look what happened yeah, to Christopher yeah, maybe, Reeve. Maybe the curve curse goes on. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, um, Margot Kidder, mm-hmm. you know, uh, yeah, there is a lot, a long line, I guess, of, uh, people uh, associated with yeah, yeah. And actually, uh, Siegel, um, you know, both Siegel and Schuster had issues, let's just say. I mean, Siegel, well, see, uh, Schuster, Joe Schuster, uh, had a lot of vision problems from very early on. So he started using a lot of other artists to help him. Um, but 
he kind of dropped out of comics and, and was doing like bondage porn, like, you know, BDM, SM, you know, whips and chains, all that kind of stuff. And Jerry Siegel, mm, uh, he, um, I think he might've had a, a, a little bit of a sweet tooth for the young boys. Let's just say, uh, you know, of course we have Jimmy Olsen, which was just, is this where all the teenage sidekicks come from? Yeah. Well, the, the teenage sidekicks really start with Robin. And that's a whole other story. I, you know, there are, there are like comic stories where like they sleep in the same bed and so on. It's just, it's just so weird. And Rob, plus Robin's like eight years old in the, in the, in the comic strips. It's just so wrong. But Jerry Siegel, um, you know, he created some other characters. One was called Nature Boy. And one was called Mr. Muscles. And Mr. Muscles had this like thin young boy, you know, this thin, sensitive young boy who uh, tagged along. It was just really sketchy. It was just like really kind of Nambla. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, there's so much of that in uh, in the old comics. And it's kind of like, you know, you talk about, you know, ruin your childhood. It's like when I started seeing like all these kind of indications of just how unwholesome a lot of the appetites that a lot of these writers and artists were i was just like oof, oof, oh, oh god I, never, it, they say never meet your heroes never find out what uh what your heroes were, were into yeah <laughs> like once, once you start to notice it like once you start to notice what they were doing in in some of these stories and some of the symbolism and just like flat out freudian insanity it's it's hard to unsee, you know. It's it's hard to unsee. So does this extend into some of our? You know, we were primarily talking about DC and the origins of things there. Does this extend into like Stan Lee and and uh, our more beloved names that we always consider somewhat sacred? Or, could, or is there anything we can still? No, not so years? much. I mean, Stanley um, Stanley was a much different kind of guy. You know, Stanley and Jack Kirby. I mean, Steve Ditko is who co-created Doctor Strange and Spider Man. He was a little. He was a little weird. I don't know if he was, you know, I don't know if he was banned from, you know, being living within two two hundred feet of a of a public school or something. I mean, I don't know, but you know, when you start looking at his stuff, it gets kind of weird too. But you know, a lot of it is like when you're just sitting in a room by yourself and you're just alone with your thoughts. I, you know, people's, you know, particularly artists who are already screwed up, right? your thoughts can just start going to some pretty dark places, you know, your fantasies, you know, when you're constantly having to delve into these fantasies, it can kind of get a little sketchy. So, I mean, that's neither here nor there, but you know, I don't think Stanley really, uh, I don't see a lot of that in, in Marvel books at all. Hmm. And, um, do you, you think know, Marvel Marvel was more just trying to take what DC had already done successfully and it's just kind of essentially ripping it off and in some ways being more successful at, at their ripoff? Yeah, yeah, no. Um, like, I would say, I mean, obviously, Captain Marvel, who we know as Shazam now, and there's another character, uh, you know, the sort of gender-swapped Captain Marvel, which the less said about the better. Um, that was like a pure, I mean, it was just a flat-out. And, you know, the publisher of Captain Marvel, Fawcett, and DC, who were publishing... Superman, they were like in court for years over that. And finally, Fawcett just gave up the character because, you know, comic books and superheroes were really on the wane. And plus, they had the um, Dennis the Menace license, which back in the 50s, that was a license to print money because that, that strip was huge. 
you know, and you still, I mean, I don't know if they still have Dennis the Menace and in Dairy Queen, but um, yeah. So, I, you know, superheroes, you can't really say that Marvel was ripping off DC because DC was ripping off the pulps. Right, right. You know what I mean? They're all sort of drinking from the same well. You know, nobody ripped off Superman because Superman is a ripoff. In, in in my my way of thinking, I mean, Superman is just a is a ripoff. The interesting thing that uh, Jerry Siegel did though is that he made him an alien, right? And that was like a new spin. You know, people forget that Superman is an alien. He's not just like a super guy. You know, he's from another planet. You know, and it is the whole uh, Moses and the reed boats on the Nile kind of deal. But it's just a rocket ship, right? And that was introduced before the current sort of, I would say, the current uh, era of UFO alien hysteria started more like in the 1940s. Right. But there were the science fiction pulps, but it was in a much different context. It wasn't. But, you know, it's interesting, too, because you could kind of argue that Superman is like the pro prototype of the more like religious Mm-hmm. cast of he's the, like a um, christ figure almost that, that's come to yeah exactly 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 so you kind of see that you could kind of see him in that context that he's more similar to uh you know that messianic space brother kind of thing mm-hmm. that became more more popular in the 50s right more popular in the 50s so um yeah, but occultism and the paranormal. So what it is, like I said, is that these OG superheroes, the pulp superheroes, all got their powers, you know, from the same kinds of pulp and pop occultism, you know, the, ironically, that were advertising, you know, because the, the Rosicrucians used to uh, advertise in the pulps. Hmm. Um Oh, wow. So they were literally, these groups that were into this stuff were actually literally then funding these pulps, which, which directly led to the, the same exactly. superheroes we know today. Exactly. So it sort of becomes a loop. So, I mean, you know, these characters are all kind of savior figures in a way, right? They're all self-sacrificing classical heroes, right? Because, you know, heroes in, in the old days were tragic figures, really. I mean, if you read the old Greek myths, yeah. um, all the great heroes, you know, have bad ends. You know, they all come to sort of bad ends um, because that's just the way the Greeks sort of saw the world. You know, is this bitter struggle with with natural forces and so on, and that you know, there's constant state of war between all these city states and whatever. So, um, you know, the heroes really are. Um, you know, messiahs in a way, and and they sort of have the same end. You know, I mean, uh, Christ has the same arc that we see. You know, these these characters that are self sacrificing heroes that that die, they put their lives on the line to save the rest of us. And then with Superman, he literally died and was resurrected as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Came back with a mullet. Um, <laughs> yeah, so really, you know, as somebody who, like I said, I grew up on this stuff. I started reading like early 70s, right? Um, to me, 
we've just been in a tape loop since like the mid 80s. Now, there, there are two sort of landmark works that I kind of see as the summation of, of comics and superheroes. And that's Frank Miller did a series called The Dark Knight Returns. And Alan Moore did uh, a miniseries called Watchmen. Mm-hmm. And these were like sort of, to me, they were like the capper. They were the last thing that could possibly be said about superheroes. Because since that time, everything has just been has just been rehash. Pure rehash. I mean, it was rehash before that. I mean, how many times can the Joker fight Batman, right? right. Um, I mean, I was sick of it. You know, in the 80s, I was just like, okay, yeah, I get it. Yeah, Joker's playing the Batman. And that's 40 years ago now. 40 years ago. I mean, just think about that. So um, we're really at an interesting point now because as we're recording, as we're streaming here, I've been keeping an eye on the, um, you know, the box office grosses of The Flash. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's just over. Um, the superheroes, I mean, I've been saying this for a couple of years now, you know, cause I, since I see these trend lines from an inside p- point of view, I can see the way things are proceeding a little farther down the line than I think, you know, normies and civilians can as they're called in the <laughs> fandom world. Um, but you know, we've had just flop after flop. Um, and underperformer after underperformer. Um, superhero movies have really kept the lights on in Hollywood for the past mm. 10, 15 years now, right? And it's over. It's done. It's just finished. It's, um, this you, would, you would think with this Flash movie, too, that they're, they're at least going to get that nostalgia boost from Michael Keaton, but, and yet this movie is performing worse than Black Adam. You know, it's worse than some of the worst movies in the past few years. So, and they they pretty much threw everything at this one. And uh, you know, despite all the online buzz, that hasn't translated into dollars as well. So, there's a reality on the ground where you can definitely see. I don't know if you just think it's the oversaturation, or if there there's some other reason that they're just failing so much. The wokeness, whatever you want to call it. There's a million reasons you could point to, but uh, it does feel like even hardcore fans are like, "Ugh, I've had enough." Everything has everything lives and dies. Everything has its natural life cycle, and myths are not forever. Um, look at the westerns. The westerns were the great American myth, weren't they? For a hundred years, really, up until the early seventies. Is you know, seven early seventies, mid seventies. I mean, you still had big budget westerns being made, and then. It they became much rarer, right? I mean, you still had like Unforgiven and Tombstone, and you know some big, uh, but it wasn't like anything like what it was. And we're we're going to be seeing the same thing with superheroes, but it might be worse because um, these movies are unimaginably expensive to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that people really understand. And somehow they still come out with really shitty animation. This <laughs> is really well, shitty CGI. It's unbelievable. We we we're, we're past peak CGI. CGI CGI is really hard to do, right? Um, I have a friend who was uh, a, a computer animator in, in the video game industry back in the nineties, and he was really successful at it. And he walked away because he was like, "I I don't want to die of a heart attack or of cancer." Because he just saw people 
in his business, dropping dead, 30s, early 40s. You know what I'm saying? Just just like literally just dropping dead at their desk. Just from the man hours and the, the work. And, and I mean, it's just unbelievably stressful. And, you know, you've got a new coterie of of kids who just don't have that kind of like self-sacrificing work ethic. Mm. Um, and it's I don't almost like the, uh, the... you, you know, why should you sacrifice your life for Warner brothers or right. Disney's profits? Right. I mean, what the mm-hmm. hell does it do for you? So I, I don't blame them whatsoever. I, I think that they're spot on, but the problem is, you know, it isn't a problem for me, but it's definitely a problem for, you know, for, uh, Bob Iger and, uh, you know, David Zaslav and all these other studio heads who are like, oh, you know, it's, it's, oh, and people, it's interesting now because people are starting to notice. I mean, I've started to notice how CGI has gotten bad and, and some more specialist kind of people like on YouTube have been pointing this out for a few years now. But now it's like the big story with the flash is like, why is the CGI so terrible? And the, the for, especially uh, for a movie that was pushed back like four or five. I mean, this is supposed to come out years ago originally. Well, the movie's been in production at least 10 years, right? Yeah. So, um, the same thing happened with Ant, Ant-Man. Like, people are like, why does this, why does this look like crap? Well, it looks like crap because CGI is really expensive. It's really labor intensive. You, you, you're counting on um a, a fairly small amount of people who can do the work well and what you're doing is you're just burning them out and they're not going to be replaced so i i really feel i mean i genuinely feel that um once the strike is over and you know sag which is screen actors guild they're talking about um striking and after talking about striking I think they reached some sort of uh, agreement with the Directors Guild. Um, these movies are really expensive. They're really time intensive. Um, the studios don't want to pay the amount of money because they're just not, you know, in the age when with the age of free money is over. People are like, how could um, the studios just afford to, to make all these movies that weren't making any money back? especially with the end of the DVD market, right? Well, they could do that because they, they just had a, a constant flow of interest-free loans, mm-hmm. which is just like free money, you know? Um, and half the time, they, they weren't even expected to even pay it back, right? So that those days are over. Um, we may see things starting up in like Asia, like maybe India and China, and they're they're sick of Hollywood too, so they they're going to want to start to make their own versions of these films. So it'll be interesting to see how that will play out. Um, I don't see them gaining a lot of traction in the West. I mean, certainly not the way like Japanese and Korean stuff has, because that's just that's a different kind of culture, you know. Uh, Japanese and Korean culture have always been like dark and uh, twisted is, is what i well, think not only that but you know they're very they've always been you know since the end of the since the post-war era they've been very mm-hmm. obsessed with american culture so what they've done is that they've sort of taken um, american pop culture put their own little spin on it and then sent it back you know with a sort of exotic cutesy uh spin that you know young kids especially kind of young shut-in kids today 
you know, find really appealing. I mean, but the thing is, it's like anybody who's like got an, uh, an anime or a manga avatar on Twitter is usually going to be saying some pretty heinous shit about like, <laughs> kids and you know what I mean? The odds are high enough. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I see an, it's like my, my hackles go up whenever I see somebody with an anime avatar because i'm like all right they're either going to be uh trans communist uh maps right maps um satanists you know? there will be intersecting combination of the four. what's that there will be intersecting of, of a few of these most likely right yeah so it's not altogether wholesome I'm curious if you think, you know, because especially in the in the movies in the last few years, whether it's Marvel or DC, it's it seems like what started as a minor novelty sometimes is now the entire basis of every film property is this multiverse thing where everything is the multiverse, and now we're bringing back past versions of other characters. Do you think this whole multiverse push on on every side of this thing is really just the last grasps of you know of gasps of air for the 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 superhero industry, you might call it? Uh, is it just the last thing we got to try to throw, you know, every little bit of nostalgia, every little bit of weird crossover we can do to try to get the last drops of money about anybody who's kind of remaining standing at this point? Absolutely. And, and I'll tell you what it ties into. I'll tell you what it ties directly into. So I talked about Watchmen and Dark Knight, right? Well, that same time period that uh, DC did a book called Crisis on Infinite Earths, mm -hmm. which was a, a big multiverse crossover. You know, the, the, story back then is that they they had so many different timelines going on that they sort of wanted to just boil them down to a single timeline that the fans could follow um the multiverse stories i it is grasping at straws but it's also a way to like you know have big dramatic moments with the hero getting killed and you know you can just you know reach into the wormhole and grab another version right. of it, you, know, you know what i'm saying it's mm -hmm. it's it's lazy storytelling but it's also just, I mean, you know, after um, Endgame, right? You know, with Thanos just kind of destroying half the universe's population. I mean, how do you follow on with that? And this is a problem that the comic books had in the 70s. I mean, I can I can speak to this being there. The same problems that, that the cinematic superhero universes are having, the publishers had the exact same problems in the 70s interestingly enough you know so when you saw these phase four characters black widow shang chi eternals uh forget who else <laughs> you, yeah, uh, you forget for a reason so yeah yeah i mean none of these movies really flew but these were i mean these were all characters that i was a big fan of back when mm -hmm. i was a kid right but none of them were really popular you know none of these characters really had a constituency i mean i was a huge fan of shang chi which is in a book called he was a character in a book called master of kung fu mm -hmm. um you know and the eternals was jack kirby who was like my my guy at the time uh he didn't really know what to do with it. it's just it's not a strong eternals was not a strong concept eternals are characters that you put in an avengers movie it's like the avengers are like flying around oh we've got to fight this and no oh, here's thanos and everything you know who do we call on for help yeah and they get on the little avengers phone and they call um the eternals that's that's kind of who they are right they're just not 
very strong characters in and of themselves. The interesting thing about the Eternals uh, in Jack Kirby's original Eternals is that, you know, some of them were actually, which they kind of do in the movie too in an even stupider way, is, is they say some of them used to be like the old gods of old, like literally not just not just referencing the gods and the ideas of having powers, but they were literally were these gods like uh, Hermes and whatnot. So um, yeah, well, see, a little less subtle with the occult references there. Oh, well, see, that's Kirby. I mean, Kirby was really heavily into uh, ancient astronaut stuff in yep. the late fifties. And he was doing ancient astronaut stories in like 57. All right. So this is 10 years before chariots of the gods, five years before morning of the magicians. And he was just doing it straight up. You know, I mean, he was really into this whole concept and, but he was also, I mean, he was into everything, you know, like all the kind of crazy stuff and a lot, I mean, really, it's, it's it's so funny to me because, um, you know, when I was a kid in the 70s, like, I, I, I was still, like, a big Kirby loyalist, but, like, most fans hated his stuff, right? And they're into, like, the X-Men and so on. And the interesting thing about it is that all, a lot of those movies were just using you know, characters and ideas that he had created in all these comic books that nobody liked back in the seventies, which I always found kind of interesting, but the whole, I mean, the whole Marvel universe was really the Kirby universe. Right. Um, I mean, Thanos is just based. Thanos is just a direct, a well-acknowledged rip off of a character, uh, Kirby creator called dark side right. for the, uh, a book called the new gods. And then, and which couldn't well, be more direct in and of itself. Yeah. yeah well, uh, and Ju- and and George Lucas basically just ripped off the, the the you know the archetypes of the new gods for Star Wars. I mean, there was even you know like there's even like the Force in the in the new gods. It's called the Source, mm-hmm. right? It's and it's it's that simple. And and really, when you look at um when you look dark at dark side, Darth Vader. Well, exactly, exactly, but. Uh, even more than Dark Side, Darth Vader is just Doctor Doom from Fantastic oh, Four. Yeah, well, there you go. And yeah. you know, I don't know how many of your your listeners might be familiar with our character. Oh, very, very much so. The, yeah, you're you're in the right place for the nerdy references. So. Same exact character, you know, like the young scientific prodigy, but he was also, you know, he's into the occult and mysticism, and then he's horribly scarred and burnt, and then he's encased in in armor it's the same friggin character um <laughs> and it's interesting too because if you look uh and that's at, one of those i can't believe i never made that that connection now it's so obvious well here's another one um like the crew of uh the millennium falcon so it's like han chewbacca leia and uh luke skywalker that's the fantastic four and huh. you know, it's like this, you know, if Chewie is the thing, yeah, like Chewbacca is <laughs> the thing, right? And um, yeah, totally, uh, Han is Johnny Storm, the hothead. Yeah, no, uh, Luke is Johnny Storm, right? Because he's okay, he's, yeah, the young siblings, right? Right, right? right? You know, yeah. Sue and Johnny Storm, it's the same. Like, people go, Oh, you know, uh, George Lucas was reading um, Joseph Campbell and and you know, watching Kurosawa films. Like, no, he wasn't. He was reading <laughs> Jack Kirby comic books. It's just straight up. And, 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 um, Raiders of the Lost Ark is, 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 is lifted straight from Kirby's Black Panther series. 
Because hmm. Kirby's Black Panther series was all about like, you know, raiding King Solomon's tomb and, you know, uh, these sort of adventurous characters who go around the world looking for relics and something. And a lot of the ideas in his series were also in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I mean, it's like so much of Star Wars. I mean, Star Wars is just pure pastiche. I don't take Star Wars seriously. I just don't. It offends me as somebody who's into the history of this stuff because it's so it's such a cut-and-paste job. You know what I mean? It's so obviously just a collage of other people's ideas, and which is fine, but if you, if you know the original ideas, you just can't process it the same way. And, you know, there's so much Kirby in um, in Star Wars that it's just, uh, you know, I mean, even like C-3PO is, is based on a character, a Kirby character called uh, the Recorder. So, uh, you, know, it, it, you know, it looks not entirely dissimilar. It's like this android and, you know, he, he accompanies Thor on these adventures and so on. So, um, yeah, it's, it's all just it's all just rehash. But, the, you know, when you talk about Hollywood, you know, it's like the well is run dry. So, you, you know, you asked me about wokeness and stuff. And wokeness to me is just the opportunistic infection. Mm-hmm. You know, like Hollywood skinned its knee, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And, um, you know, all these microbes infected it. And, and, and the microbes were like all the woke people. So the wokeness is like the flies on this di- this already dying carcass. So like it's like let's yeah. let's pick up the scraps. Yeah. Let's put our shit out here on, on this thing that's going down anyway. Well, not quite a carcass, but no. But like like I'm saying, it's the opportunistic infection. You know, I don't think woke in and of itself did not cause the death of superheroes in Hollywood and everything. They just took advantage of it. They just capitalized on it. But the the infection was already setting in. I mean, because if something is already trending downward and already dying, it's more susceptible to just some hotshot executives coming in and saying, "All right, well, we're just making the lesbian everything now, or the black everything now." You know. Well, exactly, exactly. And a lot of it's like the kind of people who, you know, who kind of like run Hollywood now, and it's people who hire their friends. You know, you get people who come in, you know, from women's studies programs or something they get a job in hollywood you know back in the you know the the woke virtual signaling uh free money days right when they could just afford to indulge these people kind of keep them quiet with these make work jobs but the problem is is that these people come in they start making trouble you know this you know all this me too stuff um they 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 start scheming against you know, these older guys in these corner offices, they, they scheme to get them kicked out and them fired and disgraced. And then they hire all their, you know, their, their friends from women's studies and culture, gender studies and all, the, you know, all these people that they knew in school. And that's really what we see. I mean, uh, I it's just incredible re- how I mean, it, it, what you're saying really does explain a lot because you'll see a lot of these um, writers that get brought on, especially to a lot of these Marvel movies and Marvel shows, and you'll see interviews with them, and they'll they'll almost brag about how they never read the comics and don't care about the characters, and so they have to like ask their their one nerdy friend questions, and it's like, and these are the people putting being put in charge of the of overseeing these characters. So there's no wonder there's such a disparity between the product and, and the actual, like whatever may might remain of the hardcore fan base. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, so, 
and I saw this in the this happened in the comics too. So so what happened starting about 15 years ago, um the places where these people would normally go, mainstream media, academic journals, academia, um, all these sort of places that had had births for your your gender studies and your cultural studies and your black studies and all these kind of people graduating from these programs. Those jobs just started to vanish, you know, particularly um, newspapers and magazines and so on. So it's like comics came along and they sort of saw an opportunity because the interesting thing about comics, and I'm going to be stepping all over all kinds of toes here, but, you know, comics, as somebody who was involved in, in, in the milieu since a very, very early age, you know, fandom and so on. Uh, let's just say that comics is filled with weak men, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and these company, a lot of these companies are run by weak men, and weak men who uh, are naturally subservient to uh, strong women, and naturally fall in line with, you know, because it's all like kind of Oedipal mother stuff, you know what I mean? Because most of the people had like major father like major daddy issues and so on and and strong attachments to the maternal energies right maternal aspect but um you know just like kind of nerds you know just like guys who didn't get a lot of action in high school um a lot of them like in their 40s and they're still virgins right um you know they're easy marks and i think a lot of these women came in and and they you know it's it's well known that they would get on these like message boards and these secret facebook groups and so on and plot like how are we going to how are we going to get rid of this guy and that guy and how are we going to take their jobs and how are we going to take really? over it? Like that so, openly what's that like that openly yeah well i mean it, it wasn't that openly until people you know infiltrated these groups and started posting the screenshots and so mm-hmm. on right but it it was that it was that deliberate. It's like X amount of women's studies, gender studies, cultural studies majors, graduates, very poor um, career uh, prospects. And you know, I mean, the thing that has to be said is that you know, a lot, say a lot of these people end up at like Marvel Comics or something. They're making next to nothing. Mm-hmm. And the salaries, are, you know, salaries are pathetic. I mean, I, so I worked, like I said, I worked for Marvel and the company that preceded Marvel for 25 years, right? And in the good old days, meaning the days before um, Disney bought them, <laughs> uh, that that was the end of the, the glory days. But in the good old days before Disney bought Marvel, like I'd go up there all the time, right? And and I just hang out with like people who worked there, you know, like the people that I, I worked for because they were all just like super, super cool people. And one time I was doing this interview with this, uh, these students from Toronto who wanted to make a documentary on comic books and everything. So they wanted to interview me because our God's War spandex had just come out. And it was funny because it was the day during a blizzard in New York. Right. And I said to these guys, these kids, right. I said, Hey, you want to go up to Marvel? And they're like, what i'm like yeah come on i'll take you up tomorrow you know you can you can you know get the tour and i was hoping that they could film right 
And uh, so we get up there and my, my boss says, uh, you know, they don't want you filming up here and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, well, that's cool. So whatever. Um, but I just take it around introducing them to people. Right. But so this is like the, the, the divisions of Marvel that were making money. Right. <laughs> like the, right. the movies and the toys and all this kind of stuff. The actual comic folks, the guy who is like the big deal superstar editor in chief his office was literally a converted broom closet in the back, <laughs> like near the emergency exit. You know what I mean? So you're, so you're in this main floor, right? And there's like accounting over here and there's like, you know, consumer products here and, and this and that over here, legal here, whatever. And then there's editorial. And at the time editorial was like this little, you know, couple like two or three or four offices at the most. It's the exact opposite impression that you have, at least that I would have growing up reading these comics, always seeing that same name, you know, editor in chief. You always picture, oh, this is the big wig. This is the guy with the fancy office. You know, uh, this is the guy who runs the place. <laughs> yeah, but you know, and that's here's the here's the the ugly truth that people within the industry have always acknowledged is that. Since the kind of the the post Batman sixties collapse, you know, so the, the comics were huge. So you had like Fantastic Four and Spider Man and all these kind of books in the sixties, and then you also had the Batman TV show, which was just a phenomenon, right? But then there was the post Bat. So Batman, I think, was canceled in sixty eight or sixty nine, and uh, there's just it, the whole thing just kind of falls in on itself, and. Um, it really starts like these, you know, so like in the sixties, like Superman was selling like 800,000 copies a month, some, something crazy like that. Right. And now it sells like, I don't know, 20,000, 30,000. I mean, Oh yeah. The physical like, books, even the high selling books. You know, it's funny because DC comics, I mean, I think Batman is typically their, their highest selling character, but still to to make a, a number enough bat sales on Batman, then what what might have been two or three books nowadays? They just put out like twelve Batman books a month, <laughs> and then because that's they know if they just put Batman on it, it will sell enough. Uh, but even that, they have to like overproduce and overmarket it just to just. To it doesn't it sell enough though. So let me, so let me just finish my story here. So I took these kids up, and you know, I was having them. There was a VP there who. Um, I sort of was like my main contact at the time whenever I was working on a, a project for Marvel. And, um, you know, he, he was, he was great. Cause he's like answering all their questions about what's coming up. But a couple of years later, I had lunch with the same VP. Right. And he said to me flat out, he said, comic books do not make any money for Marvel hmm. period. He said, they are a loss leader. This is 2012. Mind you, this is, over a decade ago and he's like they do not make money and this was at a time when they were trying to get into the books store market and they were putting all like original graphic novels and so on and all this kind of stuff out in the book markets and he's like we are losing so much money on that stuff and it wasn't long after that that you know ike parmutter who is you know the ceo at the time just said don't stop no more no more original uh, graphic novels, you know, and any of this stuff, you know, the only stuff that they would put in the stores were reprints, you know, um, collections, trade paperbacks, but no original stuff, no original material, none of the hard covers, none of this kind of stuff that they were doing that they were just losing money 
absolutely hand over fist on and 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 so uh in, in the 90s early 90s maybe late 80s i don't know um i was taking classes at school of visual arts in new york right and one of my teachers was this guy named carmine infantino and carmine infantino was like the guy who sort of recreated batman in the 60s um he was called like I think it was called the New Trend or whatever. But he was like an artist who had been in the business since the forties, and then he became editor in chief of DC, and then he got fired by Warner's because of the whole thing with the uh, Superman movie. But anyhow, um, I mean, he told me he said DC does not make any money on comic books. This is nineteen ninety. This is like the post. I mean, this was like Batmania Volume Two. And everybody thought comic was like the wave of the future. Everybody thought everything, I mean, everything was like selling like half a million copies or whatever. I mean, you know, it's just ridiculous. So this is 1990. This is um, like six months or so after the the Batman movie came out. And it was like the biggest thing. I mean, I remember going to um, Earth Day in, you know, taking my kids or my son to uh, Earth Day in 1989 and this was like a month or two before the batman movie came out and everyone in new york city was wearing a batman shirt it was just everywhere i mean it was it was just in the air so um but he you know he said he's like they don't make any money on those comics it's like they only publish them to keep the copyrights active hmm. you know and to develop stuff that they might use for toys or or movies or whatever it's just like it's not even like R and D though. It's just like a loss leader. It and well, that explains why it seems like some days you see books that are put out and like and stories that are put out that it's like you literally read some of these books and you wonder how they exist because you know and then that that explains it though because they if they if they don't even care if they've already sort of accepted that they're loss leaders that they're just publishing to publish then if they don't care of course the product is going to reflect that well you know if you're talking about like the stuff they're doing now where everybody's gay and everybody's race swaps everything the only reason they're doing that stuff i mean because none of those books sell at all like literally don't nobody buys them nobody reads them i mean stores will order them and that's what they count as sales because the 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 customer for the comic book companies is not the paying customer it's not the reader it's the store owners because of the way the system is set up. But anyhow, um, they just do that stuff t- for uh, clickbait stories, mm-hmm. pure publicity. I mean, they know that nobody wants to read like S- Superman's gay son stories. They, they, they know that nobody wants to read this stuff. They know nobody wants to read like, uh, you know, Gwen Stacy is trans, or whatever. They know nobody cares about this stuff. Right. The people who do care about it, the people who talk about it on some of these fan sites, they don't read the comics. And if they do, they just read them on bootlegs, uh, bootleg sites, right? Uh, pirate sites. They don't read this shit. And, you know, Marvel and DC know that. It's just all about getting stories in on CNN.com or whatever. Mm. Pure and simple. It's just visibility. It's just keeping the characters visible because they could so here's the thing so say you did like every you know you're like we're going to make every hardcore fan of which they're only like a quarter million in the u.s and 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 only have been like that number stayed like frighteningly consistent since the early 70s um so we're going to keep this quarter million base of fans happy right 
give them everything they want, give them all the characters they want, right? It doesn't matter because, you know, they're not making money in the book. So it's just like, all right, well, we're going to drive off the fans, you know, who most of these guys, single white males in their 40s and 50s. You know, we, nobody wants those guys, right? And uh, we're just going to just write them off because we need to to get our we need to keep our characters visible with all these ridiculous woke nonsensical stories and that's what they do i mean all this woke stuff it's just 100 percent straight no chaser publicity stunts up and down the line no exceptions at all at all I'm i mean i saw sure. i saw people talking about just the the death of the punisher the committing suicide that that it had no never read comics don't care about comics but they were absolutely outraged by it so it's always just the the people that aren't would never be talking about this in the first place it seems well, the Punisher is a character who, like, you know, your, your cultural studies majors, you know, these people who will work, people who will work at a job in Manhattan for $30,000 a year, right? Um, and that's another thing we should talk about is this whole comics broke me hashtag that's been going on around on Twitter. But anyhow, um, you know, they hate it. They hate that character because it, it represents everything that they hate. In, in other words, it represents their fathers. All these people, so comic books has always been sort of a refuge for people who have problems with their fathers. And I'm not the I'm not the guy who pointed that out. There was I forget his I think it was uh an old DC editor named Andy Helfer who I think pointed that out. You know, like most of this stuff is for people who have problems with their, their fathers. And the biggest daddy issue people in the world are like your gender studies and your women's studies and your culture studies and your you know your race studies. I mean, all these um people who rack up ridiculous amounts of college debt for near useless degrees, right? Um, I'm totally useless now. <clears throat> I mean, they were only near useless when all these uh, these horny 40-year-old virgins at these big comic companies would hire these mo mostly relatively attractive young women <laughs> you know what i'm saying because they liked having them around they like they smelled good right <laughs> it's like yeah i like the way that you know that that young rich girl from from westchester uh you know when she walks around this like give her a book pleasant whiff yeah it, it it is that simple it really is that simple and it's it's that gross it's that gross it's that depressing it's that depraved. It's that sordid. It it really, 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 really is. And I'll tell you something. I mean, just being involved in fandom from a very early age, like I said, uh, you know, I mean, the, the 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 entire hardcore core of fandom is just filled with, and always has been filled with people who have, um sexual variances let's just say uh they have um unhealthy interest in 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 very young children let's just say um or you know they're um they're edible basket cases edible basket cases you know with oedipus complexes so um you know, and I want, you know, <laughs> you wanted to talk about the occult and so on, but it's like that's the same. Uh, it, thing. it all ties you know, in together. Yeah, it, it all ties the, in together. Same kind of people, you know, it's yeah. like nobody, nobody healthy and balanced is drawn to the occult. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's just like the occult is not for people who have this shit together. Right. It really isn't. It's 
it's either for people who feel that they've gotten a very rough shake out of life and sort of want to appeal to hidden powers to overcome that, mm -hmm. or it's just like rich perverts. You know, right. you know, that's what I say about Satanism. It's either dumpy losers or rich perverts, right? I mean, <laughs> that's that's what Satanism is. It's like and mix it all together, and somehow we get our modern comic book industry today. <laughs> well, I mean, there's so many crossovers now. Um, because of you know this the constant sort of collapse of of the culture, right? The collapse of a consensus culture. You know, the weirdos are getting weirder. And you know, like I said, they're getting, I mean, a lot of these people are really heavy, you know, heavily into feeding the whole trans movement, right? I mean, comic books, you know. All the trans people that I knew about for very many years were in the comics industry or in and out of the comics industry, right? Um, they just couldn't make up their mind on that either, huh? Well, it, it is. It's all psychosexual trauma. Mm -hmm. I mean... And certainly played out in, in most of our superhero origin stories as well. I mean, almost every superhero origin story has a, a tragedy with the uh, the parent or, or or abuse by the parent or some combination thereof. But I mean, you're right. But it's just like, just put a character like Batman in a real life context, you know, like the classic Batman. Like, why is he running around with this like half naked eight year old boy? <laughs> right? Like what? What the hell is that? You know, because um, if you look at Robin in the original comics, I mean, he's 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 a baby. You know, what I mean, he's a child. And like, who it's, thought who thought that was a good idea? Like, oh, it's yeah. one of those things that it's so imbued in the culture, and we think of Adam West Batman and the goofy teenage Rod, Robin that when you never stop to actually think about it for two seconds, what is happening here? This this older man running around in tights with a little teenager. And then you realize that Robin was actually eight, and they were, and then, and then you're just like, "What the? How was this ever okay?" Well, I'll tell you something. One of the other characters that I've looked a lot into because it's a mess is Wonder Woman, hmm. and um, you know the guy who invented Wonder Woman was oh a psychology. He was one of the army's first psychological warfare professors, right? <laughs> one of the first people who taught the the, the skills of psychological warfare, right? And then he he um, was sort of kicking around when the comics got real popular in the early '40s. And then he pitched his idea to uh, like the, it, it's hard to explain, but um, there was it wasn't actually DC itself. It was sort of like an auxiliary company, but it's neither here nor there. But anyhow, so then he starts um, Wonder Woman. And if you go back and look at those Wonder Woman, it's the most perverted shit you'll ever see in your life. It's all like bondage and little kids, and, and it's just disgusting. It's just so perverted. And actually, there's a woman. So, uh, you know, this is back in the day when parents actually cared about their kids and <laughs> what they were consuming. And so to sort of keep the parents quiet, DC would hire these um, luminaries, you know, to sort of give their blessings to the books. And, and one of the the people who they hired was a sort of like a pop psychologist, right? Sort of like a Sally Jesse Raphael of her time called Josette Frank. And she was supposed to sit there and like, just sign off and say, Oh, don't worry, parents, this stuff is great. And what broke her was Wonder Woman. 
She said, I forget the, the, the exact way she said it, but she said an out and out striptease would be less unwholesome than this, this disaster. You know, she just said, this is perverted. These comics are perverted. This is disgusting. And she quit and she walked away from like a plum gig. She was making pretty good money. And the woman who replaced her was a woman named Loretta Bender, who is just basically, uh, MK Ultra before MK Ultra was MK Ultra. I mean, she's sort of like the founding mother of MK Ultra. I mean, this woman was a monster, an absolute monster, and was doing mass um, human experimentation on children at Bellevue Hospital. Wow. Um, you know, basically pumping them full of like insulin, and then when you know, basically killing them and just sort of seeing what would happen, right? <laughs> Just like this is like Auschwitz stuff, right? And uh, and then when LSD came in, she would like these kids, these orphans. A lot of them were like mentally handicapped in the in you know in these public houses, these you know hospitals and so on. She was pumping these like small children full of like ridiculous doses of LSD, ridiculous doses. It was horrific. It was the most horrific thing. And she's the woman who DC hires to basically tell parents, oh, don't worry, this stuff is great. This wow. stuff is great. Wow. Now, there's a guy who, when I was growing up with all the boomers, was like a big villain, this guy named uh, Frederick Wortham, right? And he wrote a book called Seduction of the Innocent. And this guy's one of my heroes. And he's been my, I remember when I was working on, I, I don't know if he became my hero when I was working on a guards with spandex. Or I, I sort of idolized him before because I always grew up with all these like boomer weirdos telling me that, you know, how horrible this guy was, right? But he was the guy who wrote a book called Seduction of the Innocent and just basically said, you know, this shit is fucked. And these, the people who are making this stuff are fucked. And they're, they're, they're screwing with, they're exposing kids to violence and gore and all this sexual weirdness, S&M, all this like ridiculous stuff. These kids are way too young for it and it's having a terrible effect on them. And he was right. He was absolutely right. And if you go back and you look at some of those comics before he came along, I mean, some of the stuff is stuff that you wouldn't even see in like an R-rated movie. Like some of the horror comics. And I'm like, yeah, this guy took a lot of heat became sort of like this, uh, you know, villain, uh, super villain character. But he was right because these comic books and the people publishing these comic books were disgusting. I mean, just flat out, you know, flat out. Um, there's a company called EC, right? And it was um, the guy who started Mad Magazine was the, was the publisher, right? And but at the time he was doing EC, he was a wicked speed freak. He was like, he was like sort of a, a chubby guy and started taking speed to, to lose weight and everything. And basically, I think he basically became a, you know, a victim of amphetamine psychosis, because if you look at those EC comics, it's just like Texas chainsaw massacre kind of stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that, that it was being marketed towards children, mm -hmm. right. T towards very young children. Right. And all these boomer weirdos who never had kids or anything, they just, they don't understand that, it's, it's it's not good for children. The stuff is not good for kids. You know, maybe you're just like a teenage weirdo who wants to get his rocks off on like gore and stuff. Fine, whatever. You know, do it. Do it makes you happy. But this stuff was being aimed at like four and five year olds, and it's stuff that you know you would see in like what's that French movie that 
horror movie disciples, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know the movie I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, I know what you want to mean. Like the the, the torture porn classic, oh. and, and that's what like a, a modern day hostel or a, a saw. Yeah, 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 yeah like exactly that kind of idea. Yeah. So, um, it's not to be, you know, the comics industry, um, or as we knew it, which was kind of like the superhero industry, is dying. Uh, pretty pretty slow and miserable death. I mean, it's almost it's it's like got one foot in the grave right now. And good riddance to it. I mean, yeah. I mean, there were a lot of great stories and so on, but there was just a lot of. I mean, just a lot of just junk. Just like yeah. well, there, there's a reason most of the stuff we talk about on this show in terms of comics are older stuff from from decades ago. Not not as once in a while there's a modern day gem that sneaks through because there's certainly talented people working on this stuff. But for the most part, the modern stuff. It's it's as you describe it. It see it seems like it's just there to be there for the most part. Uh, but Chris, it's, I really water. It's it's to keep the print. You know, right? You would you would be just shocked by the motivations to to publish this stuff. A lot mm-hmm. of it is to keep the printing presses running because these companies get discounts on mm-hmm. volume. Right. 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 So they'll right. publish a lot of these comics that they know nobody's going to buy just to keep their discounts and to keep, you know, their, their, uh, like their postage discounts and so on shipping discounts. And it's literally that tawdry. It's literally that cheesy. And, um, you know, I mean, like I said, I I really feel, you know, personally, I, I feel like very blessed to have grown up. Like I grew up on the tail end of the silver age, you know, Marvel age and so on. And then the seventies with all the weirdo hippie psychedelic stuff. Right. And then like the eighties when it was like, well, let's, let's see what we can do with this art form. And then, you, you know, you had love and rockets, which I was a huge fan of Nexus American flag. And then, you know, like I said, like dark Knight returns and, and Watchmen. But that was like, that was when they hit the wall. They're like, it, it, there was, the, there was nowhere else to go after that. Mm-hmm. There really wasn't, there was nothing else to be said about superheroes of, that was meaningful after dark Knight and watchmen there really wasn't because that took it to its logic those two series took superheroes to the logical extreme and there was literally nowhere else to go and that was almost 40 years ago okay so there you go Chris, we certainly appreciate you bringing on your perspective uh, on this. And of course, uh, people can follow your work if they're at all interested in uh, not just the comic book related stuff, but all things really occult symbolism and occult, occult related stuff that goes on in our pop culture. You're pretty much on top of all of it. So, uh, of course, I mentioned the Secret Summon blog, but feel free to uh, reference uh, anything else you got going on that people should yes. any books you got yes. going on. Feel free to I've rattle got, it off. I've got a book coming out, um, hopefully, early July called the spandex files oh uh-huh. which is my right. um my farewell to to the comic this is a very time you know it's very as, as i say it's a good time i didn't even know about that one yeah so this is sort of my um this is my my bon voyage All right. comics and superheroes and stuff and listen i mean i'm very grateful uh i you know i raised a family working as an artist mm-hmm. you know f- for marvel and so on um you know i'm grateful for that i i'm I'm not you know i'm not one of these like uh you know yeah thanks for the dinner you know fuck go fuck yourself (laughs) you know it's like i appreciate it you know and there are a lot of good people who did a lot of good work Mm -hmm. you know um but the well the well has now run dry and it's all over but the shouting and i would be surprised 
if most of the superhero movie projects that are in development right now survive these, you know, the writer's strike. I was wondering the same thing. I mean, yeah, for survive the writer's strike, which might actually provide the perfect excuse to shut down a lot of projects that they were already foreseeing on the horizon. We're about to lose money because Marvel has this whole multiverse slate plan. DC just has this whole James Gunn slate. And I got to think they're looking around a little bit and saying, do we really just want to throw away a trillion dollars on this on a slate of movies at this point? Uh, listen, the writing is on the wall. Okay, so people, you know, went to The Flash and said, you know, yeah, it's not that bad of a movie. I mean, it's probably no worse. Of, I mean, people go back in like 10, 10 years or so and go, you know, like watch The Flash. And it's like, is this any worse than any of the Thor movies? Right? Is this any mm-hmm. worse than like, I don't know, um, Ant-Man movies, right? right, right. But it's just... N- Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it's just like, it's over. It's just over. You know, I think it's, it's also a sign that like the, cause they used to have like, we can always kind of uh, fall back on, on a big nostalgia kick and heck, we're going to give them the biggest one ever here with Michael Keaton. And, and, and when now that's not even the working, even the nostalgia is just meeting with being met with a whimper. I think that says a lot. Well, the interesting thing is that people are nostalgic for that first Batman movie. It's not that good a movie. I still enjoy it, even uh, even on a recent rewatch. But uh, but it's all it's all context too. It's, it's partially I am aware that it's partially because I watched it when I was nine. So the nostalgia is for me being nine. Not for I'm not going to argue with nostalgia. Listen, you know my sons, you know, would watch those movies, those first two Batman movies, like practically on a loop. You know what I mean? They'd watch. This is the VCR days, right? So they'd watch Batman Return, uh, Batman Returns, right? The one with the second one, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they'd watch it, rewind it, and then watch it again. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not, I'm never, I would never argue with anybody's nostalgia. And if people love that movie, oh, but yeah. by all means, go it's for it. It's not Shakespeare, I mean, is the point. It's not Stanley Kubrick here, you know. Yeah, but it's not a deathless classic, is right. what I'm saying. And if people are nostalgic for it, I, I. I, I think I think nostalgia is perfectly valid, mm-hmm. right? I, I think that nostalgia gets a terrible rap. You know, I think nostalgia is a very powerful thing that I, I, you know, I just would never argue with. I would never try to diminish someone else's nostalgia. As a matter of fact, I kind of make that mistake in in Our Gods with Spandex because I just hated all that a lot of that '90s superhero stuff, and I kind mm-hmm. of, you know, I got some pushback on that, and I think I kind of learned my lesson. But I was trying to make the point because I was kind of building up because a lot of our gods with spandex was about was kind of centered on Kingdom Come. Do you remember Kingdom Come? Oh yeah, that's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I remember that that really blew me away. And it was funny because even so, even like that is like, at, what are you going to say about superheroes after? You know, if you're not right, going right. to say anything about superheroes that's particularly profound after. Dark Knight and uh, Watchmen. What are you possibly going to say after? Um, That's the only thing I can hope for. Maybe is if because I know James Gunn has tweeted out some like Kingdom Come. If if they could actually do an awesome Kingdom Come movie, I I might be there for that. But then then maybe it's time to shut it. They down. never will. I, that's it, the problem. It's it not going to be what I want it to be. I'm sure it would cost ten trillion dollars to make, and they'd still do a bad job of it. <laughs> uh, it's it, it's most just, likely. And why do you need a, a movie of it? Oh, you're right. I already is, got the good one. Right. The comic book is is perfect, you know. I mean, you're going to get a great experience just reading Dark, uh, not uh, Kingdom Come, 
Yeah. And I, I would I would recommend that everybody read that. It's one of the few stories that uh you know if we do some formal type review shows here. It's it's one of the very few. It's a very elite group that it got a, a ten out of ten score from us. Oh, it's it's amazing. I mean, I just fl- straight up and down everything about it is amazing and perfect and unimprovable. And again, it's like if I thought the superheroes were over after Watchmen. I really thought they were after <laughs> Kingdom Come. I mean, it's just like I think it would be a fair point to point to as the absolute peak of of comic storytelling or superhero storytelling. I I I, I would not. I think it's the last great mm-hmm. testament. It's the last great expression of of superheroes because you know after that you that sort of inspired like the Ultimates, and that sort of you know inspired like the widescreen, the kind of like more realistic more godlike depiction of the of the heroes and that had a huge influence on our guards with spandex right but um you know now we're at the same period that we're at in the 80s with like the um the post watchman post dark nightling you had all these parodies superhero parodies that came out right and now we've got we've got the boys and wandavision and mm-hmm. you know all these kind of like Smirky, the darker versions of everything self-referential self-mocking kind of yeah. versions of uh, you know i mean the boys is just you know I and mean, it's just it's all signs of the end times you, you could argue here uh when it comes to superheroes but uh we well, have well, the, end times, the end times have come and went I mean, right. we're just like we're, we're just we're cleaning up the we're just bodies. hanging out in the aftermath right we're, right, we're, uh, we're just basically throwing the bodies you know all the the bodies on the um you know, on the, on the bonfire now. And it's just, it's over. Right. And all we need to do is just clean up the carnage. It's, and it's never coming back, never coming back. I guarantee you it's never coming back because it's really a vestige. Superheroes are really a vestige of Greek mythology, particularly Greek mythology and Greek mythology that was popularized during the 1800s with the neoclassical movement. And that fed into occultism and, and, spiritualism and theosophy and that inspired the creation of the superheroes in the early in the 1920s so it's just like there's nothing left you know there's no meat left on the bone so well chris we thank you for uh, coming here and uh you know gnawing on a little bit of whatever's left on the bone i guess you could say with us and i uh, look forward to the new book i'm glad i brought you on now it's pretty, pretty good timing so we'll definitely have, have an eye on that. all right thanks so much chris take care appreciate it All right, gang, I hope you enjoyed this conversation again from the Second Print Comics podcast. If you are a fan of this show and you are not aware that I have another podcast with my good friend, Remzo Martinez, he has been on the show. I actually, I got to admit, we actually lost a patron. I actually lost a patron of the Mark Clare show, but he went over to the Second Print Comics and doubled his pledge there. So it's pretty much all adds up. Uh, So I don't care if you you need to withdraw support from one show I do to support another one. That's all up to you. I just put all my stuff out there and give you the options because I really do enjoy having these conversations. Conversations. I really enjoy having these conversations, of course, about all the subjects I discuss here on the Mark Claire Show. But comic books and that medium has been a passion of mine for uh, you know 20, 30 years now. So to do that show each and every week with Remzo Martinez is a true, a true blessing. It's a, it's a little bit of therapy for me as well. So I really want to strongly encourage you, if you enjoy the conversation you heard today, head over to second. Actually, we're on Substack now. So just look at look up secondprintcomics.substack.com. Uh, and of course, you can find the Second Print Comics podcast everywhere, including our YouTube channel, which we're just kind of getting fired up and starting to to try to grow that too. So please do head over to YouTube uh, to check out the video of this episode. That being said, next week, for real this time, we're going to be in the brand new Mark Claire Show Studios and I'm going to have a great conversation for you then. Until then, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.